With me, Kristen Ralph Inkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We have a great, good, wonderful show for you today. We start out talking about democracy, what's in it for you, and what you can do. After that, we dive into the debt ceiling, the farm bill, SNAP and WIC, food stamps, and access to nutrition for those who need it, and how you can help. Moving on from there, we talk about what's happening with mental health in America, and then we close the show talking about states, how activism in the states reflects what's going on across the country and what we can make happen in the U.S. Capitol. We're going to jump right in with our first guest. We are joined by a spectacular mom who is rising for all of us each and every day, Christine Pelosi, who is an award-winning author, a DNC member, and advocate and mom herself. Welcome, Christine. Thank you so much. I'm so excited that you're on because you, more than anyone else, know the power of the mom vote, know the power of electing moms to public office. What should everyone know that you know about this topic? Everyone should know that your mom power is your superpower. Uh, My mom, Nancy Pelosi, raised five of us kids and then went into elected office herself of going from housewife to house speaker. And what I learned from my mom and try to teach my daughter is that politics isn't a great leap to power. It's the it's the movements that you make along the way with your friends and your neighbors for the causes that you care about. And the fact of the matter is a lot of moms know how to multitask. We know how to organize people. We understand diplomacy. We understand group dynamics. We understand making choices. And we know that the value of our volunteer work is sometimes as important, if not more important, than uh, writing a check. So uh, the elbow grease, the mom power, and the mom's ability to multitask and organize are what make moms so important to politics and to public life. A lot of people think, oh my gosh, I'm only effective in politics if I myself am running for office. They don't realize the incredible importance of volunteer pushes. Can you share a little bit about that and what that looks like? Absolutely. In fact, I was just on a call with some people who were amplifying messaging from the White House about the uh, deal that President Biden was able to strike with congressional Republicans who wanted to absolutely destroy our economy and roll back a lot of the progress that was made in order to give a huge tax cut to the top 1% in this country. And one thing that I mentioned to our friends in the highest echelons of power is don't forget the grassroots. It was the veterans who complained for six weeks about cuts to veterans care. And yes, that included a lot of mom, military caregivers who were saying, wait a second, um, the Republicans are trying to destroy the compact that we make with our veterans. And that's simply unacceptable. It was the moms out there organizing in a grassroots way against the Republican default crisis that gave space for the politicians to then respond to the public outcry and go to the bargaining table knowing that the public was with them. So politicians in a room alone are not going to solve the problem. Again, I'll quote my mom, Nancy Pelosi always says, the inside maneuvering can only take people so far. And yes, you want moms in office so that they remember everybody else on the other side of the locked door who's not in at the negotiating table. But You need the outside mobilization because that's what makes things happen. And if we look at the 
progress that we are able to make in the states, at City Hall, or even at the White House, it is because the moms are organizing against gun violence, for a child tax credit, for paid sick days, for veterans care, for climate action, you name it. It's the outside organizing that elects the politicians and gives the politicians the political space to do what the people want them to do. A lot of people think, oh, moms, you know, they don't have any political power. Nobody listens to moms. And in fact, being a mom is a greater predictor of wage and hiring discrimination than gender. And moms of color, due to structural racism, experience compounded wage and hiring discrimination to the extent that Latina moms earn just 46 cents to a white dad's dollar and black moms just 54 cents to a white dad's dollar. That's not okay. So you look at those wage gaps, you look at those stats and you think, okay, no political power. But the opposite is true. It's almost like elected leaders don't expect moms to speak up, don't expect there to be political power. So when we have our moments of raising our voices, it almost has double the impact. <laughs> and we have a lot of moments of raising our voices that you just said. What is your take on the discrimination that moms face in the labor force and the power um, in politics? Well, I think we saw this a lot during COVID, Kristen, because if you think about it, and I was a government lawyer for 11 years, so I understood the uh, import of sitting at your duty station, just physically being present in the office, right? Showing up and being there is, of course, very, very important. But it's not the only thing you can do because we learned during COVID that if you have a certain kind of job, you can telecommute, you can, you can work from home, you can work remotely. And in certain jobs, you absolutely can't do that. Our quote unquote essential workers, the same people that we praised during COVID and whose benefits the Republicans couldn't wait to take away the minute they got into power. Um, a lot of those were moms. So moms do essential work. And unfortunately, when you're in the workplace and people are saying you have to physically be present at all times in order to show your worth, well, Let's face it, if moms make 77% of the healthcare decisions for their families, according to the um, Kaiser Family Foundation surveys, and that includes then taking family members to doctor's appointments, um, guess what? That mom is not going to be physically present at work. And so people look around and say, oh, well, she's not here, so I'm going to give the opportunity to the people who are here. That's an unmarried woman, or that's a man, or that's a dad who, by the way, isn't going to pick up the kids from daycare, isn't going to uh, take kids uh, to the doctor or to school activities. So there definitely is a mom tax when it comes to work. Some of it, as I said, is the machismo of the office. Are you present? If you're there, I'm going to give the assignment to someone who's there, and you can only succeed if you're physically present. Well, we've proven that's not true. Second, when it comes to essential workers, if we don't have paid family and medical leave, then it's going to be moms who have to take unpaid leave in order to care for their family members. And again, they're not going to be there when it's time for promotions, when it's time for management opportunities. So we have to relook at what we think about work how we value work and whether we are val valuing performance or whether we are valuing mere, merely physical presence in an office. So I think that's really important. And finally, I would say that the best example of this came with um, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who as an attorney argued um, for um, equal pay and for uh, paid leave before the court and lost. And then later, 
um, when she was a member of the Supreme Court, was able to convince Chief Justice Rehnquist to vote her way. Why? Because in part, his daughter had gotten divorced and he, as grandpa, had to do some time um, picking up the kids and taking them to and from uh, child care and realized the unique burdens that society places on women that shouldn't necessarily be placed only on the moms. So um, we can't wait for lived experiences um, by men in power to get us to justice. We need Fair Pay Act. We need to have equal opportunity in housing. We need to end pregnancy discrimination. And we absolutely need paid family medical leave. Absolutely. And studies show that when we have those policies, paid family medical leave, affordable child care, fair pay policies, access to equitable health care, that actually the wage gaps between moms and non-moms and between all people lower. So these policies are win, 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 wins. And one of the things that's interesting too is studies, including studies at places like Pepperdine University, which studied Fortune 500 companies over many, many years, found that when you have women and moms in business leadership, that actually the businesses make more money across all measurements. And that is because in part, moms are smart. Women are smart. <laughs> Just because you have a child does not change you know, your brain in a significant way that impacts your work at all. Studies again show that. Um, and also moms are the primary consumers. Moms are making about 80% of consumer purchasing decisions in a country where 76% of our economy is based on consumer purchasing decisions. So having moms in leadership isn't just the right thing to do. It's a smart thing to do for businesses and for elected leaders. Similarly, there too, there have been many studies at Rutgers University and more saying that women and moms are the most effective legislators. They're actually able to pass more legislation that lifts more people and the economy year after year. And so I wanted to lift that too about the studies about effective legislators. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it, the expectations are easy to beat, right? Low expectations are easy to beat for moms in office because um, we go into public service, whether it's party office or we're elected public office, knowing that people think, well, moms aren't going to do as well as dads. Moms are going to be distracted by um, the uh, work they have to do raising their children. It's, a, it's, you know, dads could be distracted too, but the expectation isn't that they would be. So therefore, it's a pretty low expectation to overcome. I think also moms know uh, as candidates, and, and you know, I, I train them through my, my campaign boot camps uh, to let them know that candidates are going to be judged by whether or not they can focus on the problems of their constituents. People don't want distractions and people think, um, that if somebody is uh, a mom, that she's going to be more focused on her children's problems than she is on my problems. Well, um, we can compartmentalize and care for our children and address their concerns and issues and needs. And we can also care for those of our clients or our constituencies. So again, I think moms know that going into public service, there is a why aren't you taking care of your children? I mean, people ask my mom that, and I was in college when she ran for Congress. So come on. It is also true that when children are younger, it is very, very hard to subject them to the kinds of threats, online bullying, um, and other horrors of social media. There are moms who simply won't run when they have younger children because they don't want their children exposed to the negativity um, that is out there. And it's a horrible, horrible thing 
to see your family maligned and attacked. And when you're a young person and people don't know anything about you other than what um, is being reported in the news or purported in the media by your political opponents, that can be really, really, really rough on kids. So there are many, many good reasons why moms will tell us, you know, my kids are younger and I just don't know if I want to put them through the viciousness of a political campaign. And that is why we need not only to have better support systems for women candidates and mom candidates in particular, but also why we need to increase publicly financed campaigns and reduce the role of dark special interest money so that those attacks don't come out of nowhere unaccountable, um, because that allows a more wholesome exchange of ideas and it eliminates the threat of big, nasty, outside, anonymous spending that um, goes after women. Women are always attacked on ethics. Moms are always attacked on, uh, gee, she's a nice person, but shouldn't she be home taking care of her kids? Um, and I've had women say to me, Christine, I'd love you to run for public office. As soon as Bella's in college, you'll be ready, right? And I'm thinking, well, true, but maybe when she's in high school too. But the fact that it's a woman telling me that, um, gives me pause because I also think women are hardest on other women, right? Sometimes it's out of genuine care and concern because we know what the odds are out there. And sometimes it's a little bit of um, uh, holding each other down and still being tied to the views of the patriarchy. Um, because those are questions that would never be asked of a man. Absolutely. They would never be asked of a man. A man is never asked what's going to happen with your children. I mean, it is very, very interesting to watch. So we only have a minute left and we have some tips for you all who are listening. One of the tips is when you raise your voice about public policy, when you share your story, when you call your member of Congress, it has a giant impact. The second tip is when you volunteer to help somebody who you admire run for office, that could be volunteering to make phone calls at a phone bank, volunteering to text, volunteering to door knock, volunteering to do any kind of fun, exciting thing with lots of other fun, exciting people. That makes a ginormous difference. You don't have to run for office in order to have a big impact on democracy. The other tip is if you are running for office, create your own kitchen cabinet of people who are close to you, of five to 12 people who can help you run for office and can help with all kinds of things like finding other people to help you run for office, meaning finding donors, help you do things like get a meal train set up so that if you're out door knocking at night, you can help get food on the table for your families. All kinds of help is welcome and needed. And democracy works best when we're all involved. And the important thing, this takeaway that from talking with Christine Pelosi right now, is that your voice is powerful, your actions are powerful, and every single different type of venue. So thank you, Christine, for go coming on. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for leading the way. And thank you, thank you, thank you a million times over. Thank you, Moms Rising. Thank you, Kristen. And moms out there, Get ready to organize because moms are going to save democracy. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. We'll be right back with our next guest talking about the farm bill, the debt ceiling, WIC and SNAP, which is access to nutrition for everyone who needs it. We'll be back in a quick
Welcome back to Breaking Through with me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by Alyssa Schmier of Moms Rising to talk about everything debt ceiling and you. Welcome, Alyssa. Hi, nice to see you. I'm so glad you're here. So we just had all across the news a debt ceiling near catastrophe. It was a miss. It was like a meteor, an asteroid was coming toward the planet Earth, and there was a near miss the very last minute. What actually happened? Yeah, so we uh, avoided massive economic collapse worldwide. We avoided going straight into a recession and millions of people losing their jobs, um, all because of this manufactured situation um, that the House Republicans placed us in. And that's because uh, President Biden basically put together a bipartisan deal um, that avoided uh, uh, default, um, avoided, you know, not raising the debt ceiling. Um, but the cost of that was having to kind of give in to the pressure um, demands of the Republican Party, which was some form of uh, budget cuts to programs, um, domestic programs only, uh, programs like WIC um, and childcare and community health centers. Um, the only thing that was kind of really left out of that is programs for veterans and veterans healthcare. Um, but in addition to that, they also included in the deal um, some additional work requirements for programs like SNAP, which some people call food stamps, um, and TANF, um, which is aid to low-income families. Um, so basically, this deal uh raises the debt ceiling for two years. Um, so we don't have to worry about this for at least the foreseeable future, um, which is good because, you know, just as a reminder, the debt ceiling is completely arbitrary. It's a number pulled out of thin air um, and set by Congress for reasons that uh, not many of us understand or know why. Um, but we don't have to deal with it um, for another two years. But what we are going to have to deal with and live with are um, the budget freezes, the freezes to these programs that don't really keep up with costs, inflation, um, or demand. And while this solution to the debt ceiling crisis that happened this year is far, far, far better than the original proposal by Republicans, it still rings the alarm bells for fights to come and things like the farm bill. It sort of sets the precedent, puts our eye on where the far right extremist Republicans are going to keep going after family economic security programs. What if you're reading the tea leaves from the debt ceiling crisis do we have to be worried about in upcoming legislative battles like the farm bill? Yeah, that's an important point to make is that the House Republicans, their demands were um, far worse than what we ended up with. They they really were going to slash funding for uh, 10 plus years that would have led to, you know, people getting kicked off of nutrition assistance, education funding would have been impacted, um, everything from clean water to the roads we drive on. So their demands were really um, intense. But as you mentioned, this kind of sets up some fights that we're going to see from now until the end of the year. Um, the biggest one is the Farm Bill. Um, so the Farm Bill is this massive piece of legislation. And one of the pieces, one of the many, many things that the Farm Bill does from everything from like subsidizing how we grow crops to um, some climate change pieces, it also includes um, information, um, funding, 
um, policies around food stamp SNAP. Um, and that is a big piece that we're going to have to now protect because what happened with the debt ceiling deal um, is there's kind of like two major things that basically happened. One was they made um, some changes to the time restrictions that people can um, be on food stamps. And so they raised the age from 49 to 54 on SNAP time limits, um, meaning that people age 18 to 54 will be restricted to only accessing SNAP for three months in a three-year period unless they're working at least 20 hours a week. They're part of a work training program that does not include college or part of an exempt group. And so the other piece that they did was they kind of expanded who is in one of these exempt groups. Um, and so they there's currently there's currently um, a list of people who are exempt and that includes um, people who are certified as physically or mentally unfit for employment. That's usually legally defined as people who are disabled or on disability. Um, it also includes people who don't have to be part of the work requirements, households with children under the age of 18, pregnant women. Um, and then the new three groups are veterans, people experiencing homelessness, and those aging out of the foster care system. Um, and so those were the major changes that were made. Um, but we've already heard that some Republicans don't think that those work requirements and time limitations went far enough. Um, they also want to make some changes to the funding that food stamps get um, a lot of different, you know, basically any excuse it can use to create barriers to access more paperwork and, you know, quote unquote, kick people off the rolls. Um, that's going to be an attempt for them to make. And so the farm bill is where that fight's really going to happen. And that needs to be reauthorized by the end of September. Um, so we're really going to have to use our voices and stands up that say, you know, like, no, we need to protect SNAP. We need to be um, building upon it and making sure that it's stronger and well-funded, not chipping away um, at the access that people can have in order to feed their families. Let's give our listeners a little perspective on what's happening right now. We have SNAP and WIC, which is the Women and Infant Children Program, Nutrition Program, both under attack in the Farm Bill. We saw them come under attack in the debt ceiling negotiations, and we expect that attack to intensify. SNAP is only $6 per person per day. That is so ridiculously low for people who are struggling to make ends meet, to put food on the table, to feed children, to feed families. It's so low. And yet the return on investment is astronomically high. Even Republican economic analysts say that for every $1 into SNAP, you get at least $1.71 back again through economic activity generation. So it is ridiculously harmful to both parents, families, and to the economy to cut SNAP. Similarly with WIC, that also is a program that shows high return on investment. Sometimes people assume that, you know, when you get on SNAP or you get WIC support that you're out there eating bonbons by the pool. That's not the case. People, we're talking about trying in this time in 2023 to eat on $6 per person per day. That is so low. Similarly, work requirements. People are like, oh, everybody should be working. Well, the majority of people who are on SNAP and are on other government programs are actually working. And can you give us a little bit of perspective on what is really going on underneath the hood of work requirements? Because what's not happening is a whole bunch of people not working. 
Yeah. So the, like you mentioned, the vast majority of people who are on SNAP work at least 20 hours a week, if not, most of them work much more than that. Um, But we have learned time and time again, that work requirements, time limitations, anything like that, um, really, you know, what it leads to is needy people losing the benefits um, that they need. And it's a hindrance to being able to work more um, and support your family, not an incentive. So, you know, I think you and I, all, all of us know that no one can work when they're hungry. And SNAP is the thing that puts food on the table. So taking that away really prevents people from being able to work more. It it only makes their health issues much worse when they can't access healthy food. A lot of people on SNAP, many parents that we hear from say that they hold back on the food that they eat in order for their children to be able to get the food they need. And that's obviously a situation we should never have in a country um, with so many, so much money um, that in the United States has. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's another piece of this that is often overlooked, which is the people who are on SNAP are people who have low wage jobs. It's a lot of women, people with caretaking needs, people who work irregular hours, um, who don't have their schedule set regularly, who don't have access to paid sick days or paid leave. All of this stuff makes it really hard to hold down a regular job, especially if you're taking care of your children, if you're taking care of your parents, if your partner or spouse becomes sick. Um, these are really unsteady environments in order to you know make a regular living. And therefore, we should not be putting another stumbling block in front of these families to prevent them from feeding themselves and their children. For sure. 150%. So we have lots of things for people to do. Lots of things. First, we have to have every single person reach out to their member of Congress and say, pass the farm bill without cuts to SNAP and WIC. Or what else should they say? I think we might have like a whole paragraph. Yeah. So we are going to have all of this on Moms Rising's website at www.momsrising.org. We have a new letter for you to send um, that calls on members of Congress to protect SNAP, to build it up, to increase funding, um, not put additional barriers like work requirements and time restrictions um, into the program. We also are asking people to share their story if they are currently on food stamps, if they've ever used food stamps, if those programs. We also have a WIC story collection page. Um, If your family has been helped in any way by these programs, personalizing this issue is really important because there's so many negative stereotypes around who accesses SNAP, how they use it, why they use it, that type of thing. And so being able to tell the personal stories of people who are boosted up, lifted out of poverty because they're able to access nutrition assistance is so important. You could always share your stories with Moms Rising anonymously too, if you don't want to share your name, that's totally fine. But we are going to be creating um, a new book of stories on SNAP as we head into the Farm Bill fight. And we'd love to share your story if we can. Love, 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 extra love. Now, one of the things that's important for every listener to know is that this area, the Farm Bill, SNAP, WIC, et cetera, is an area of advocacy where there are far too few voices. That's a bad thing. The good thing is when we raise our voice as moms, as dads, as parents, as caregivers, as actual people, we have an increased impact because for every one of us that speaks out, 
legislators can kind of calculate out there's, you know, 10 to 100 of us who don't have time to speak out behind us. So I've had experiences where advocacy turning in 10,000 petition signatures has made a huge difference in protecting and saving SNAP. Now, in some areas, we have to turn in hundreds of thousands of petition signatures to make our voices heard, not so much in this area. So everybody who's listening, please take action. Please sign our new petition on Moms Rising. Please share your story. Please share everything and stay involved in this because this is going to be a long, long, long fight. And Pay attention to the news, too, because you're going to see a lot about the Farm Bill and make sure that your legislators, your members of Congress, do not forget about SNAP in the Farm Bill. We have about 30 seconds left. Alyssa, what is your last quick advocacy tip for everyone? My quick advocacy tip is to just continue to speak out um, on these issues. You know, nearly two thirds of SNAP benefits go to families with children. And as a mother myself, I know that this gets at the heart of what we care the most about, which is making sure our children are healthy and fed and happy. Um, and we can't do that without having the support of our government, making sure every child goes to bed each night with food in their belly. Um, so we want you to speak out. If you are on SNAP, we want you to share your story. Um, if you are someone who has never had that experience personally, you need to use your voice for your neighbors and your community. It's really important that we make sure we protect this program. It's the number one program we have to fight poverty in this country. And so we need to protect it. Thank you. Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you for being on. Thank you for all you do. Alyssa from Moms Rising. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back talking about mental health in America, what you can do. Tune in in just a quick bit. to Breaking Through with me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined by a guest you are going to love, 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 love hearing from, Fatima Salman of the National Association of Social Workers. Now, as we bring you into the conversation, I want to share that my mom was a social worker, so I have a special, special, special place of love in my heart for all social workers. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. Excited to talk with you. Likewise, likewise. We have a mental health emergency in the United States of America that has been declared by the U.S. Surgeon General. And I know and you know that social workers are rising to help people. Can you share a little bit about what is the National Association of Social Workers and how does social work help people? Absolutely. So the National Association of Social Workers, and just to preface, um, I'm president of the Michigan chapter, but also um, the president of all the different presidents in the national um, in NASWs across the country. Um, so the National Association of Social Workers is actually our professional organization that social workers are belong to. And so what we do is we are a member-based organization that is out there helping social workers in their um, in their own career, in their, you know, getting CEs, uh, giving them training opportunities, giving them advancement opportunities, those types of things. At the same time, though, we also are an advocacy uh, arm for social workers and propagating mental health, right? And um, we're going to probably go further into the importance of mental health, but um, and this being Mental Health uh, Awareness Month, you know, the, the importance of of our organization is is pretty big. 
We are in yeah. a mental health awareness month. The U.S. Surgeon General has declared a mental health emergency for America. What should everyone know? So <laughs> mental health is important for everyone. I mean, first and foremost, I think, is just the makeup of us as humans, right? That we have our component of physical health, but mental health is a part of who we are as, as people and individuals, right? And it's some, for some odd reason, it's been something that's been overlooked um, as, as a component of our health, but the, the, you know, mental health affects our physical health, right? That um, when you're not mentally well, you actually end up having somatic symptoms that end up becoming physical symptoms, which is fascinating, right? And if you look back and look at people who you might not have recognized were maybe clinically depressed, but, you know, that's where a lot of their ailments come from sometimes, right? So it's like when you're treating an individual, we talk so much about physical and, you know, vitamins and those types of things. But when you're treating an individual, your mental health counts just as importantly as your physical health. And so, so we have to keep that in mind as we're looking at how to create wholesome societies, how to create wholesome communities, how to create wholesome families, right? Um, so mental health is obviously critical as to who we are. What I think, though, is the problem is we don't talk about it enough, right? We talk to little kids about eating your vegetables and, you know, like all these different things. But we're not talking about also like how to recognize signs of like, you know, how to understand that you're anxious, how to under how to overcome anxiety, how to, uh, you know, when you're sad, how is that you can overcome these things? We're not talking about this from the most basic of levels. And so, you know, this is just something that we have to think about as a society is how, what is the importance and emphasis that we're placing on mental health from, from beginning our lives until the end of our lives. So true. For listeners who are right now going, wait, I need to think about that. Is there a website they can go to? Well, we do have our NASW national website. Um, you know, but these are things that I wish that this was more prevalent. I wish that there were websites that we could that we could go to. You know, it's interesting. I remember when I I, I have three kids, and um, I went back to grad school when my, I had my youngest, and so he was. You know, my older. They were there was a big gap in age. And I remember I attended a class on CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, right? And it was given by Dan Fisher, the guru of really just a phenomenal man at University of Michigan. Um, and, uh, and he was talking about CBT with youth specifically, right? And how to train youth and, and how to treat youth with uh, cognitive behavioral therapy like methods, which is really kind of focusing inwards, understanding th feelings, all that stuff. And I remember my, my little one was only like two years old at that time. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to try this on him. <laughs> so like when he was little, I was like, what do you do when you feel sad? Or show me your face when you're sad. Show me your face when you're mad. Show me your face. You know, like for him to recognize his emotions. And now it's so interesting. Now he's much, you know, he's 10 years old, but it's quite fascinating. He's able to recognize his emotions and, and feelings um, because he was trained that way, you know? And so I wish there was a website where we could be like, you know, this is like the basics that you need for parenting on how to um, raise healthy, healthy and body youth this is how you train healthy in mind um you know youth like i wish there was a website but there's not so maybe that's something we got to work on i don't yeah, know yeah we got to make one yeah, i was yeah, just thinking about fun. that yeah i was talking with someone today about 
how important it is to be able to name your feelings. And like, if you're having, for example, the seven stages of grief about something that, you know, just being able to name that you're going through each of those stages, because there are stages, you know, emotions are not permanent. They're like the weather coming by. So being able to name, oh, there's a thunderstorm on the horizon, or, oh my goodness, there's a hurricane, or, oh, wow, now it's a sunny day, you know, in terms of your emotions can be very helpful. Um, just in both recognizing the impermanence and recognizing your response and the tactics you need to use um, to address each of those stages of emotion. Absolutely. So I love this. We have to create this website. Listeners, We you heard it. Let's do it. <laughs> we have to create this website. So many people have questions and yeah. the answers are so important. Um, And, and so I, I want to talk a little bit about, so there's the emotional aspect of mental health. And then there's also the policy aspect of mental health. There's things yeah. like making mm-hmm. sure we have enough funding for social workers for youth, maternal, and people to have access Mm -hmm. to mental health Mm -hmm. services. And there's things like having access to high quality, affordable childcare and making sure childcare workers are paid fairly. You know, because if you're not paid fairly, if you can't make ends meet, then that also is a mental health crisis. If you have a baby and you don't have access to maternal health care that's equitable, that too is part of a mental health crisis. You know, Absolutely. all of these things are interconnected. At Moms Rising, we just launched a Moms for Freedom agenda, and mm-hmm. it has the top 10 sort of policies, paid family medical leave, youth and family justice, mental health access, health care access, reproductive rights access, um, gun safety, all mm-hmm. of these policies, immigration rights, you know, all mm-hmm. of these policies mm-hmm. come together like, you know, Audre Lorde said, we don't live single issue lives, so we don't have a single issue struggle. And that adds up when we don't have a care infrastructure, when we don't have a justice infrastructure that is just to help create a mental health crisis as well. Can you Mm -hmm. talk about how policy and health interact? Oh, my gosh. I mean, (laughs) I know. It's a big question. (laughs) Yeah, like where to start, right? But Policy, I mean, you know, a lot of times it's just interesting because people think like government policy is just like this like um, thing that doesn't affect them. But when in essence, policy affects all of us, right? Like you said. And and the idea and what I mean, I, from what I understand, Moms Rising is where my, you're Michigan based. Um, we are very fortunate to have legislators in our House and Senate who are actually social workers. Like we actually had the most amount of social workers um running uh, running for office and winning um ever and you know in Michigan which is phenomenal because because then they come and approach policy through a mental health perspective and how critical and amazing is that right to be able to look at the you know like gun violence and its effects that it has on the mental health of children yep. to think about like worker wages and maternal maternal you know uh maternal mental health like all of this and the effects that it has on society we know that we live in a complex system. Nothing, like you said, is single issue at all, right? Everything compounds one another, right? Like you said, when moms aren't don't have access to good childcare, they're they're not they're they're gonna they're gonna try to figure some other way out. But not just that, though. Like th- their families, they're they're gonna be they're, they're gonna be affected in their job if they don't have the right access to to um to good childcare, right? The work that I do on a daily basis. I mean, my my volunteer position is, you know, for NASW, but my my everyday job is really employment equity work. And so mm-hmm. we recently did a whole slew of focus groups on with 
um, you know, a large population in Detroit and single mothers and, mm -hmm. and how, and you know, how, what are their barriers to getting good jobs and staying in their good jobs? And one of them was the most important one was childcare, right? And, and especially in Detroit, right? Where you don't even have good, good quality childcare. Um, so all these things are so critical and, and do affect policy because policy is what's going to give people access. Policy is what's going to make changes to be able to get that mom transportation to get to her job and daycare for her kid, right? Like though that's where policy comes in and it's not something to be looked lightly upon. In fact, we have to be working as a collective, as like, if you care about these issues, then you have to care about policy also. You have to care about making changes in that in that realm and in that arena as well. And so it's it's all tied together. Policy is what's gonna affect us in our societies and, and the work that we do every day. 150%, I mean, and the thing that people forget that I know you do not forget is that when we're talking about public policy, getting access to parents to affordable, high quality childcare also means that the parents who work in afford in childcare get fair pay and the parents who work as the bus drivers get fair yeah. pay you know yeah. in the transportation yeah. and that absolutely. we are all truly linked together absolutely. And, absolutely and we all do better when we all do better studies show it it's just not just absolutely. the right thing to do it's not just the smart thing to do it's the best thing to do absolutely. to make sure everybody has access to the supports needed to thrive absolutely you know? we are we are connected to one another whether, so you know, we, yeah, it's so important. It's so critical. Speaking of we are connected to one another, you do spectacular work also in one of the many things you do spectacularly in combating stereotypes and anti-Muslim rhetoric. Um, do you have a moment, just a quick moment to share about how that is important to having healthy communities as well? Yeah, I mean, hate against one community affects every community at the end of the day, right? And hate towards one marginalized group will affect any other marginalized group. Um, and and hate is is in general is is a disease and a, a, a like a, a negative thing that needs to be changed. Because if you can hate somebody, you could you can easily hate somebody else in terms of yep. marginalized communities, right? So, so the work that I do towards my community, towards my you know towards anti-Muslim rhetoric and my own community. In essence, I really do believe is creating changes and ripples for the entire for all of society. So, you know, I, you know, I guess where I'll start off with is, you know, I've always been an advocate and a Muslim representative and a Muslim leader. But especially after um, Donald Trump took office, there was so much anti-Muslim rhetoric and his whole Muslim ban that it became it came to a point that where I had to not just do work within my community or just like locally, but really push myself and propel myself to do work on a state by like, base level and a national level. And what's beautiful, I'll, you know, I'll also say though, is that even though there's hate, what's incredible that I find is that it also brings out the love. That's mm -hmm. what I think is really beautiful is that when you do see hate, all of a sudden people that do love come out of the gutters and are like, you know what, we're not going to stand up for that. Yeah. Because in a in a in a regular time, you're not going to find that. You're not going to find people that are feel compelled or passionate that they have to speak up. But when they see such harshness and such negativity, people do come out. And I think that that we have to keep that in mind too, right? That for every action, there is a reaction, right? And for the action of hate, you do also find people coming out in droves saying that you know what, we're not going to stand up for that. And and that's I think that's something that that 
always struck me in that in in those moments where I've been working towards anti uh, against anti-Muslim rhetoric is also being like, oh, there's a lot of allies out here. <laughs> there's a lot of people that do care, um, and and I think that's 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 something to think about too. That's really important advice. We're out of time, but I want to just end with that note of advice and underscoring what you just said to our listeners. If you're in a moment where you're questioning whether you should stand up with love um, and be an ally, the answer to that question is yes, stand up and be an ally. It makes a difference. It has ripples of positive, healthy impact (laughs) through our country. So please, please, please join the many, many, many people who are standing up in love. Uh, as we come into this election season as well. So thank Mm -hmm. you so much for being on. Thank you for all you do. I'm We have to follow up on our, you know, our website. So (laughs) thank you so much. And thanks for all that you do. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Next up, we're talking about states, how state legislation impacts us all, no matter where we live. We'll be back in just a moment. We're going to fight for with me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by a guest you're going to love, 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 love hearing from, Beth Messersmith, who is bringing us the inside scoop from North Carolina and talking about how what happens in North Carolina could happen in a state near you or one that you're in right now. Welcome, Beth. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. North Carolina is, I don't know, an enigma politically. What kind of word would you use to describe North Carolina politically? A roller coaster. Roller coaster. <laughs> That's true. Lots of ups, lots of downs. All of the ups listeners are happening mostly because of the one and only Beth Messersmith, who is a strong North Carolina leader. And I'm wondering if you can sort of lead our listeners through the hills and valleys, the ups and downs, the roller coaster of North Carolina politics and policy um, to give an idea of sort of what's happening or could happen in the United States of America. Oh, it has been a very, very busy few months. Um, yes. We have some wonderful things happen, like Medicaid expansion, long overdue, long awaited, much needed Medicaid expansion, finally is hopefully becoming law here in North Carolina. It would be life changing for about 600,000 North Carolinians who have been waiting a very long time for our state to finally join most of the other states and pass Medicaid expansion. So um, that was wonderful. We're trying not to, um, you know, our chickens before they hatch. Uh, we have to get our, our budget approved, which we're hoping will happen any day now. Um, so that was a huge high. And we've been working for that in North Carolina with our Moms Rising members for years now. At the same time, it's been the lowest of the lows. North Carolina joined uh, a number of other states that have moved to pass uh, extreme abortion restrictions, banning abortion after 12 weeks here in North Carolina, um, particularly difficult in a state that already has one of the nation's worst maternal mortality rates um, and that we know uh, puts so many more families, so many more uh, pregnant people at risk. Um, We've also seen movements to uh, repeal background checks on handgun purchases, Uh, something else that Moms Rising has fought successfully for many years, um, but in this particular legislative climate, um, they voted to repeal pistol background checks at a time when we're seeing more and more school shootings, more violence. Um, and we need those kind of background checks in our community. So it's been, it's been quite a, quite a ride the last few months. 
Suffice to say, North Carolina is a swing state. It's the epitome of a swing state. Sometimes it votes Democrat. Sometimes it votes Republican. Sometimes the policies go far right. Sometimes the policies are all right. How have you seen sort of that swing between the types of politicians elected impact the policy? Because a lot of people, and I'm asking this question, because a lot of people are like, my vote doesn't matter. And he, we are here to tell you, your vote matters. <laughs> and so this is my leading question <laughs> to Whoa. you about sort of why votes matter in terms of who gets elected to public office and what public policy comes out from that. It matters tremendously. Here in North Carolina, um, if we hadn't, ha it came down to one vote. We had, um, we had a lock on the supermajority in the North Carolina house and so that meant that when bills terrible bills like the abortion ban like the repeal of the pistol permit background check like when those were passed there were enough votes in the house to um, uphold the governor governor cooper's veto of those bills that's what's happened year after year here in north carolina um earlier this year we saw a democratic lawmaker from charlotte um switch parties and when that happened uh it's it changed everything here and as a result of that, that switching of parties, we saw a 12-week abortion ban happen. We saw a repeal of background checks. Um, it makes a tremendous difference. Who is in power? It makes a tremendous difference who turns out to vote. Um, and it changed everything here in North Carolina, quite frankly. Yeah, changed everything. And so here we are with an example of the power of people in direct democracy. And Beth, you've been leading, growing, and really building the power of the people of North Carolina, of moms, of dads, of parents, of caregivers, for many, many years. What's your advice to other states that might be about to go into this kind of roller coaster situation? I think it's be persistent and don't give up, no matter how hard it gets. Um, we have seen uh, victories which are, or defeats which are crushing, like the abortion ban. But after years of persistence, and story sharing and contacting lawmakers we did see medicaid expansion pass right we did see the inclusion of language in the senate budget that will support uh, school meals we might have lost on the pistol permit background check but we were able to stop them from repealing the concealed carry permit so the idea that your voice doesn't matter that that phone call doesn't matter that that email doesn't matter it's just not true it's the way we um create a firewall to try to protect the things that matter most to our families. We may not always win, but if we don't show up, we're, we're going to lose. And the other thing I hear you saying between the words is something that I personally have increasingly understood the importance of, and that is uh, persistence, the power of persistence. I mean, sometimes these things take years Sometimes these wins are in centimeters, not miles. You know, we have miles to go to get to the wins that we actually need to create the transformational policy change that will lift families, our economy, our communities. And we're not there yet, but we are getting there inch by inch, centimeter by centimeter in many ways. And we can't discount each centimeter of a win and we can't discount the power of persistence. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's incredibly accurate. Um, policy change in North Carolina happens in increments. Very rarely do we have massive policy changes that happen all at once. And um, 
each of those increments is hard fought, right? They happen because of those stories. They happens because of the meetings that, that take place in local communities. They happen by meeting your lawmaker at the coffee shop. Um, we don't take those increments for granted here um, because they build up bit by bit by bit to make the kind of change our communities need. Um, for example, we've been working for over a decade to win paid leave here in North Carolina. Uh, we started a campaign in 2016 with our partners that we've been winning community by community, paid parental leave policies, paid family leave policies. Those added up to an executive order for paid parental leave. And we did see um, language passed this session providing paid parental leave for all state employees, for all school personnel, for all community colleges. Those happened because each of those individual victories happened in communities across the state. And those happened because our members and our partners showed up time and time again. It takes a long time, but we have to celebrate each of those victories because they're all the result of people power. I love that. Now, that takes a long time. The persistence, the incremental wins are sometimes tiring. How do you recommend people in North Carolina, people in any state in the nation where this is happening, keep themselves going, you know, and don't give up? What do you recommend to people? Celebrate the victories, all of them. Mm -hmm. No Even the little ones, ones, people. I'm with Beth on this. Even the ones that are like a quarter of a centimeter. Even the little ones. The other thing is build community. I mean, it's what is it? they say, if you want to go far, you have to go together, right? Yep. And it really is that community of people. It's not just that we're doing the work. It's how we're doing the work. Mm -hmm. That we're trying to build the community, to build the world that we want to see. And we can't do that alone. And so I think that a lot of it is about finding your people and supporting each other through it and sharing our stories and sharing those victories and being there for each other in those moments of heartbreak because those are real too. Yep. Um, and quite frankly, they're also the places where I found some of my closest friends, right? Yep. You got to find your people. Yeah. Find your people. And you can find your people like that could sound daunting. We've just been through a pandemic that's turned endemic. People got dispersed all over the place. People are having trouble finding their people. Reports are saying so one of the easy ways to find your people is to find an organization that is mirroring your goals. Now that organization could be Moms Rising. We hope, we hope, we hope. Everybody's welcome. If you have a belly button, you're welcome. Or it could be any other type of organization. You know, there's lots of different organizations, nonprofit organizations in every community. And so if you find your organization that speaks to your heart, um, then you will find your people. Um, and if your people aren't at that organization, there's probably another organization you can check out. So I just want to uh, break down the barrier to uh, finding your people. That can seem daunting right now. Uh, there's a lot of separation between people after the pandemic. So we only have a couple minutes left. And I'm wondering if you could share the top tactics that you have found to be the most effective at moving state policy change. I think it's storytelling, quite frankly. I mean, I think that um, the numbers are important. Data is important. Lawmakers want to hear the numbers but they really want to hear the story behind the data. They want to hear what's happening in their communities. They want to hear how it's impacting their constituents. Um, they want to know what impact those policy decisions make. And it can be hard to tell your story. It can feel very vulnerable to tell your story. Um, you know, I still tear up telling my own birth story, right? But it's one of those things where there is power in realizing we're not alone, right? Yep. Um, our stories often have common threads. And to God, when we weave those, those threads together, we can see a much bigger picture. That's and, sure. uh, and there's a lot of power in that. I think the other piece is just staying in contact, building that relationship. We always say it's all about relationships. 
Um, and it is getting to know your lockmaker, making sure they know who you are, whether it's a phone call, whether it's leaving messages, sending emails. Um, lawmakers are just people. And I think that oftentimes we can get intimidated by that, but they're just people. And uh, reaching out and making those personal connections really does make a difference. It really does. And telling them thank you. So if you're a lawmaker, the majority, I would say 99.99999% of what they hear is not thank you. It's the opposite of thank you. Right. And so if there is a win, remember to say thank you, because that will be the most memorable thing for when you ask for your policy change the next time around. I and even when there's a loss, I would say saying thank you to the lawmakers who spoke up on the right side of things because they're yep. existed too, right? Yep. And, and making sure that they know that you have their back and you're in their corner and that you appreciate them standing on the right side of the fight makes a difference too. Yeah. The other thing that helps me is realizing that there is no finish line, people. Democracy is supposed to be inclusive, reflective, and respectful of who we are as a nation, every single one of us who we are as a nation. And as a nation, we're always changing. We're always changing where the contributions are, what the needs are, all of that's changing. And so in order to have a healthy democracy, we need to have a healthy interaction with our democracy forever and ever and ever and ever. The moment we stop engaging is the moment that we have lost our democracy. So it's not supposed to be a one and done situation. It's supposed to be a continuous updating of reaching toward justice, equity, and equality for every single person. So every single person can thrive. And so that helps me to be like, hey, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. We're in this for a really long time. Hopefully, very long time. <laughs> and voting so, is just the starting point, right? Yes. Yes. Be sure to vote. Be sure you're registered to vote. Well, thank you so much, Beth, for thank leading you. the way, not only in North Carolina, but across the country. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for being on with us today. Thanks for having me. Before we wrap up, I want to encourage everybody and everybody who's ever had a mother, everybody who has a belly button to go to www.momsrising.org sign on. It is free and we will reach out to you directly on a regular basis to give you avenues to make your voice heard so you don't have to do the work of researching when, where, why, and how your voice is heard. We do that research for you. So go to www.momsrising.org and sign up today. It's free. Well, that's it for our show today. Thanks so much for tuning in as we tackle the top topics facing our nation in a way that requires the most boring disclaimer in the history of planet Earth. Here goes. Views expressed on this show are those of the individual speakers and should not be attributed to Moms Rising, to this station, or to any news or social media service that may disseminate a recording of this show to the public or to any segment of the public. Boom! We'll catch you next week. We're gonna fight for love.